Welcome to the Startup Brewery Podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open and growing breweries, from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 008, Building Your Business Plan, Ownership and Organizational Structure. I'm Laura Lodge here with Candice Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Startup Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candice is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time, and my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of info and resources at startabrewery.com. To begin, we appreciate today's podcast sponsor. Craft beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrive's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. Episode 008 continues our journey through the various critical decisions needed to create a compelling business plan. We come to today's episode on the heels of discussing mission statements and values in episode 005 and developing your brand in episode 006. With a rest stop in episode 007 to hear from Mark Youngquist, Mitch Steele, and Sam Calagione about the use and importance of business plans, values, and vision in their breweries today. Fundamentally, today's topic gets to the heart of who is creating this business plan with you and how decisions will be made once the doors are open. If you are the one with the original dream, and there really haven't been any other dreamers on board with you to this point, do you try to find people to share this dream or go it alone? And what if you need to raise capital, but you really don't want to share the control and decision-making once you're open? How do you find investors and manage them? On the flip side, how can a board of directors assist you? Can they hamper your progress? What about an employee stock ownership program, also called an ESOP, to give everyone a share of the challenges and successes? Let's hear from our guests about their experience with all of these initial ownership approaches and the risks and reward of each, and then the trials and tribulations of running the business after it opens with these ownership and decision-making structures. So today's guests are Mary Bretman with Beverage Business Builders. I always have to say that. I feel like it's a tongue twister. Uh, Mary holds an active CPA license in Minnesota and California and has 25 plus years of experience in the corporate world. In prior lives, she has been a state auditor, a sales controller, an international treasury professional, a business owner, and finally a craft brewing CFO for a fast growing regional craft brewery. Mary's current mission is to teach the industry what she's learned and to help people get to the next level in their journey. And so in 2015, Beverage Business Builders was born. Mary calls Minnesota and now California home, but has clients all throughout the country. Welcome, Mary. Hi, everybody. Our next guest is Jeff Mendel, also known as Mendy, especially today because we have two Jeffs. Uh, Mendy is one of the original owners of Tabernash Brewing Company, which merged with Left Hand Brewing Company in 1998. Mendy has been on the board of directors for Left Hand since that time, in addition to being fully immersed in all things with the Brewers Association. 
He is currently on the events committee for the BA, was co-founder of the Colorado Brewers Guild, and has been the director for the Institute for Brewing Studies and director of the Microbrewers Conference and Trade Show, among other leadership roles in the industry. Welcome, Mendy. Good afternoon. And last but not least, we have Jeff O'Brien of the law firm Chestnut Cambrone, practicing in the area of business and real estate law. He represents several craft breweries and distilleries, helping them with financing issues, real estate matters, the launch of their businesses, intellectual property protection, operational issues, and all of their other legal needs. He is a frequent commentator on issues pertaining to liquor law. Jeff is licensed in the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and South Dakota, and someone who I often personally call when I have questions or need help with anyone in those areas. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's jump in. I feel like we've got a lot to cover today. So, uh, Mary, we'll start with you. As a CFO, and from your experience, why is it so imperative that ownership be considered carefully and vetted thoroughly from the very beginning of a business's lifespan? Businesses, uh, business owners are much like a marriage. So you have a business marriage and you have a personal marriage. And I've seen it where business owners get along and I've seen it where business owners don't get along. Um, you are going to spend more time with your business owner spouse than you are with your personal owner spouse. So you have to have the same visions. You have to have the same idea of, of where you want to go and what you want to do. Um, the, there's always been this question of, do you have several owners or you just have one or two owners? And in my experience, it's been easier to manage if there's just two or three people making a decision versus 20. So thinking, think about that. Um, usually when people are starting a brewery, it's the romance phase. So you can do anything and you can make Excel do anything on, in terms of projections. Um, it's really important to get your feet on the ground as quick as possible. And so therefore, it's important to make sure that the money is flowing exactly the way the Excel worksheet says it's going to flow. So it's important to make sure that you understand where your money is and you understand how to track it. Um, some of my best startups are ones that may have, have a working accounting system before they open the door. Because before you open the door, you have a ton of time to do anything. As soon as you open the door, there's a whole bunch of other uh, drags on your time, and it could be six to eight months before you even look at accounting again. So my strongest recommendation to anybody looking to start a business is make sure you have a, a working chart of accounts and you know how to do the basics in QuickBooks Online or QuickBooks Desktop before you open the doors. Gotcha. Um, Jeff, how would you advise structuring ownership or organizational structure if your other owners or investors are active versus silent and or not involved at all? Is there a different strategy for, for when you've got everyone's very involved versus separately? Absolutely. Um, it goes, there's a lot of different things that, that, that play into that, that question. And it's one of the first questions that I ask when talking with a new client about, you know, what what their legal needs are um, in terms of the entity is what what is the what is the the the, the plan what is going to be the ownership structure because of course you know you're going to have management issues you know if we're going to use say like a limited liability company if we're going to have um, 
manager managed versus member managed. Uh, Minnesota is one of those oddballs that still has board managed for LLCs. But you can you can decide is it going to be a small group of individuals that are making decisions on a day to day basis for the business. Uh, when I say the business, the entity. Um, versus are you going to have more egalitarian and having majority rule and having everybody having a say? Um, it, it, it factors into, you know, certain transactions and who needs to sign off on them in order to do it, all those kinds of things. Um, and then also there's there are tax implications too. And Mary can probably speak to that too. But, you know, whether you're using an LLC versus an S corporation, if you have everybody working in the business and it's going to be their full-time job, um, there may be a, a reason to, to elect to be taxed as an S corporation versus having some people who are you know, involved in the business and then some of the silent partners. So um, it, it, it does factor into all that. And the other question, too, is even if some of these, in, you know, let's think about like investors, even though some of these partners might be silent, they might not be completely silent. They may want to have a say on big picture things like leasing property, selling the business, changing, you know, kind of the, 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 the business model, borrowing money, those kinds of things. And so you might have in your operating agreement or a shareholder agreement certain things that require a, a super majority approval or their consent if it's member managed for those big picture items. And that may be the only thing they care about, whether or not you brew a certain beer on a certain you know, a certain day, you know, or a certain week, they may not care about that. But what they care about is kind of the high level business business decisions. And so we have to kind of write those into the organizational documents. Yeah, I always tell people too, that just because you may not have given an investor any power in the operating agreement, it doesn't mean they might, or they can't call you 10 times a day, tell you how to run the business anyway. So That's I always exactly right. recommend vetting those people pretty thoroughly and make sure the people you want to work with. Mendy? I think it's very important to be able to distinguish between what are management decisions and what are board decisions. They're very, very different. Management decisions mainly focus on the operational and board decisions mainly focus on big picture, future vision, strategy, important financing issues such as renegotiating mortgages, things like that. Agreed. Yeah, I actually recently, have, quite a bit recently, have also discovered that when people who are putting in a lot of money or, you know, want a lot of the power, you may or may not want them necessarily to be in like a named uh, titled position because in the alcohol industry, if you're in one of those positions, you have to sign off on all the paperwork and states want you fingerprinted and your personal financial information. And when you've got a bunch of owners who really don't want to do that, you're going to run into some problems. This has happened a lot for me recently. We've just been doing a lot of licensing in other states and trying to get people to provide personal financial information and get fingerprinted and they really don't want to. Um so it's that's been an interesting struggle. Um, I, I I had some I have something to add. Um, the two points. One is when you are, are are looking you're looking to go into business with people, make sure they have the same value system. There may be some people saying two percent goes to charity, and if you have an owner that doesn't believe in two percent for charity, you guys are going to constantly be at loggerheads. Make sure you know what size you want to be. I've got some people who say, let's stay small and beautiful. And I've got other people that say, make it big. 
So it's just a matter of making sure that everybody's on the same page. To follow up with Candace on the uh, the people may maybe biting off more than they can chew. It's been my experience that anybody who has 10% ownership of the company will have to put up a personal guarantee for a loan. And I have seen loans that have not gone through because the investors will not put their personal assets up to stake. So there's a whole lot. It's one thing to just throw $10,000 at it and just have fun with it, but it's another one to actually take a major percentage in a, in a brewery and that should really be thought through. Agreed. So Mendy, as we learned in episode 002, you were part of a four-person ownership team at Tabernash and now have had experience at Left Hand with both a board of directors and uh, an ESOP program, Laura mentioned earlier, an employee stock ownership program. How have these different ownership and advisory structures worked in your opinion? Well, <clears throat> repeating what I said uh, in the previous episode, I feel uh, from experience that four partners was too many. Um, again, it was great from a, a standpoint of division of labor, uh, but it was challenging from a standpoint of decision-making, uh, from being nimble, if you will. Um, another challenge was, you know, uh, we may have had the same desires and visions for the business, but we had very different personal life situations. So we had uh, one partner, well, three of the four partners were married. I was the only bachelor. Uh, one of them had two young children and a, and a wife in graduate school. And, uh, you know, he couldn't be, he, he, we couldn't pay him enough to afford that, you know, to provide for his family. We had another one that had, was married and had three kids. And then another one married with no kids. And then me as a bachelor. And so uh, we each had very different needs on the personal side of things. And uh, that created uh, challenges in, within the business. Uh, we all agreed that we should be compensated, but uh, we couldn't compensate our, my three partners enough. Uh, and yet compensating all of us created a tremendous cash drag on the business. So that was one challenge. Another challenge, you know, the four of us each went out and got friends and family investors. So we each had groups of investors that we were bringing to the business. And that required us to create a board of directors. Uh, and that board, the purpose of that board is to represent the interests of the shareholders. Uh, it, was, it, it, it was the necessary thing to do, the right thing to do. The problem, I believe, was that we were young and we did not have much experience with governance, for one thing. We didn't have much experience with future vision. You, you have to be able to somehow think of what 20 or 30 years down the road might look like for your business. You have to be able to conjure potential exit scenarios. Uh, I believe that it's the founder's responsibility if you bring investors into the business to have some idea of how you're going to get achieve their exit. Uh, these are foundational supporters of the business. Uh, and so I believe they deserve that consideration. Um, you know, after we merged with Left Hand, you know, when, uh, when we were Tabernash Brewing Company, 
as I said, we had four partners. We each brought groups of investors. So we had 35 or so investors. And then we had a six-person board of directors. Left hand, on the other hand, was a two-person ownership team. And they only had seven original investors. And so coming together with us really rocked their business world because all of a sudden they needed to entertain a board of directors. And we had several different investor groups that needed to be represented. Uh, and it took some work, but we, we have managed very successfully this way now for 25 years. Uh, and uh, in 2015, we became an ESOP company. Uh, we felt that uh, it would be uh, a nice a nice thing to offer our employees and maybe be a difference maker in attracting talent to, to uh, provide them all with a piece of ownership. And, and, and we all, it's kind of an experiment. Will these people now act more like owners? Will they, will they take a greater interest in the business and interest in how their jobs affect the business on a daily basis? Uh, now the issue with the ESAP is it's a, a attached to key performance indicators. And so, you know, if we don't meet those, then there's not a contribution. And if you go a few years without being able to make a contribution, that feeling of ownership that you really want to cultivate begins to wane a little bit. There begins to be a little bit of, you know, what is this for? What is the value of this? Because I haven't seen it grow. I haven't seen any contributions to it. So, uh, you know, the challenge for, for the business is to hope that everybody who participated in the, in the ESOP is imbued with this feeling of ownership so, and they're all pulling to, uh, to achieve these four key performance indicators that would then unlock a contribution to the ESOP. So we're really hoping for, through the ESOP, a greater sense of, of dedication and commitment to the business. Laura, when you do an ESOP program, is there a, a percentage of ownership that's dedicated to that? Or is ESOP always 100%? What, how does that work? So the, the way ours worked is um, the company bought stock back from investors to create the ESOP. And the initial ESOP tranche, if you will, was, I want to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of percent of the business. Say that again. Yes, since two and a half percent. Two and a half. Okay. Of, of two and a half percent ownership. And it has grown. We've been able to make, we've had some years where we've been able to make contributions to it. And now the ownership uh, percentage is up above 6%. Okay. And so, you know, their, their percentage will only grow if we can make contributions to the, to the fund. And I, I, and I have to tell you, you know, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I like being able to say that it's something that we're providing for our employees, but it's a complex beast. I've been working with it for eight years and I can tell you, I still don't fully understand. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's important to have somebody, uh, fortunately, uh, our, our CEO, Eric Wallace has dug deep into it and, and has a, a, a pretty good understanding of it. Uh, but you need to, there are certain aspects of the ESOP program you need to be on top of administratively, you have obligations that you have to keep to. Yeah, one thing I wanted to add, um, because I'll, I will have some startups 
ask about this in the beginning. And I should point out that anything that's complex from a legal aspect, you can also assume that's expensive. So this is not something necessarily a, a startup from day one may have the funds to invest in. Um, just like trying to be green from day one is, is it's not cheap. We were 23 years in before we, uh, you know, initiated our resale. So that, that, that's to your point, Candace. Yeah. I always tell people it's a great goal and just like being green, but like you got to pick and choose what you can do at day one yeah. financially. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, Jeff, as counsel to potential and existing brewery owners, what is your advice to them about bringing in investors? So I have kind of a two-part answer. There's the practical and then there's the legal. The practical we've kind of already touched on of you need to know who the people are that are that are going to be your partners because whether it be the your you know your your buddies or your your, your founders versus people that are coming in and investing, everybody's a you know a partner, right? So they're you know they may be a different classes, but you, you all have you all are partners in that business. So you have to, like it was mentioned earlier, if, if you're going to give, if, if the if the mission is to give some percentage to charity, you have to have people that are investing that are on board with that, or you know some of those things. From the legal standpoint, you have to consider securities laws. Um, and you know, Candace, you and I are probably both guilty of using fear as a marketing tool once in a while with new with prospective clients, but when it comes to securities law, you are playing with fire. I mean, there are civil, there are criminal, there are administrative penalties to doing it the wrong way. And so if you're one of the, that's one of the first things I ask to as well is, are you doing this yourself? Are you self-funded? Are you going to a bank or are you going to get outside money? And as soon as we hear, I'm going to get outside money, we shift the conversation to the securities law speech. And the general rule, I'll do, I'll do it real quickly here. The general rule is you either are doing a registered offering, which is like an IPO, or you are finding an exemption to registration. And that's at federal and sometimes it's at the state level. And what those exemptions mean is there's requirements, there's restrictions as to how many, you know, who you can raise money from, how you can market your, you know, your, your opportunity to, to investors. Um, you know, what you can do online versus not online. And there's, you know, there's a number of different exemptions and they're safe harbors. You, you have to follow those in order to be, to, in order to be um, compliant with that exemption. In some cases, particularly at the state level, I think California is one of them, um, where you have, to, you have to file something within so many days of the first offer before to, 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 to make it take advantage of that state exemption. Um, here in Minnesota, for if, if for our limited offering exemption, if you're going to raise, if you're going to solicit more than ten non-accredited investors, which is people that are million dollar less than million dollar net worth, um, you have to file your all your offering documents. You have to submit those to the securities division before you even start selling. So you have to be aware. You have to be aware of when you have to have a plan of who, you, what you're gonna, what you're planning to do. And I always, I always like the, the the response. Well, I'm not selling securities. I'm selling notes. Well, the definition of security is very broad. Basically, if it's not a loan, 
or secured by some kind of a mortgage, it's probably a security. If, you, if you're taking an interest in the enterprise, or, you know, rewards crowdfunding is different, like the Kickstarter, when you're getting like glassware t-shirts or stuff like that. But if you're, if, if you're selling, if you're doing a mass, you know, kind of a, 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 you know, kind of a, this offering of some sort of stake in the enterprise, whether it be equity, whether it be notes, whether it be convertible notes, whether it be a safe, all those things are securities and you have to comply with those laws. And I, so I think, that's, that's one of the things, the, the, the number one thing that you have to think about when you're bringing in investors. You have to have a plan. You have to know where you're going with it. You have to know, you know, what your pool is that you're going to, if it, is it friends and family? Is it something, is, are you going to have to go, you know, go, go wider than that? Because we need to know that as practitioners to figure out, okay, where are we going with, with securities law compliance? Otherwise, a lot of people can get in trouble. Very true. We actually, I refer all securities and even complex corporate transactions out these days. So it's not really my wheelhouse. Mandy? Uh, you know, I think it's important that we point out that if you're on a board of directors, if you have a board of directors, these are these people have fiduciary responsibility. And, and maybe Candace and Jeff can explain a little bit what that means and why that's really important to recognize. You want me to take a step at Candace? I was about to say, I'm like, I'll let Jeff cover that one. All right, all right. Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to condense it down. You know, and that's a good point, Jeff. Yeah, fiduciary obligations, you have a duty of, it's a duty of care, duty of loyalty, not only to the, to the, the business entity, but also to your partners as to the conduct of the business, right? So yeah, if you're, if, if you're, um, you know, making, if you're, if you're doing things that you're not doing things that are compliant with, with applicable laws that can raise fiduciary issues. If you're making, if you're in the process of, of trying to solicit investors and you make say a misrepresentation that can come back as a fiduciary, a breach of a fiduciary duty, and it can subject you to some, some serious civil penalties for doing so. So yeah, it's, you, you're in a special position for being just the, you know, a, an owner of a brewery and being on the board or being a manager, if it's a manager managed LLC, um, you have some level of a greater level of responsibility um, for actions of the business um, in those in, in those in those uh, positions. Yeah, I always tell people my my biggest free legal advice on uh trying to find uh, investors is do not go on social media and ask people if they want to invest in your brewery. Uh, I think that would be considered a public advertisement and uh, you kind of you've already bro you've already broken the securities laws that you want to uh, be able to use right there. So yeah yeah there's one exemption you can do that but there's a lot of work that has to be done before you can take it to that far. I think I'm gonna ask you to delve into that a little bit. Uh, later in the podcast. Sounds good. We interrupt your regular programming with a word from craft beer's most trusted point of sale, Arrived. Arrived combines industry expertise and essential taproom tools to make brewery operations easier and profits bigger. In fact, Arrived customers who use QR code ordering see an increase in tab size by almost 37%. Learn how they do it at arrived.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Mary, I'm going to switch back to you. 
in your experience, when owners are involved with or overseeing operations, what can happen if they're not on the same page about how the brewery runs? You know, it's an interesting question. Uh, when you're thinking about startup breweries, normally there's probably two partners that are that are the heart and soul of the brewery. One of which usually does operations and makes beer, and the other one is accounting and does books. Um, and I kind of, for the most part, the the owners typically defer to each other, uh, and they they kind of know about what's going on, but they don't necessarily get into each other's wheelhouse. An exception to that can be family. One of the biggest conflicts I've seen is if parents get involved in the brewery and say the second generation is the brewer and the parents put their retirement into the brewery, then there's a whole lot of, I told you so, it must be this way, so on and so forth. In general, um, my almost 10 year, over 10 years experience, now just don't do it. Don't do it. Keep keep the same keep the same generations unless uh, the same generations together in ownership, unless you guys really really know how to work together and you've worked through all your familial issues. I see a lot of stuff with uh, parents and children that where where the family dynamics comes into the to the uh, to the brewery, and then you have issues. Um, one suggestion I can make that is that to minimize these um, these differences is that you start up a formal financials process every quarter or every month, probably every quarter to start. So everybody knows how, how much you're making, what you're doing, and everybody's on the same page. And we tend to not want to look at the numbers and we just kind of make, make, make dreams about what they are. It's better to keep people on the ground rooted and understanding how much money they're making. Laura? Mary, have you seen um, some success with ownership groups in terms of setting some parameters before the business opens about how you're going to run house charges, how you're going to run comps, you know, what kind of levels you're going to put on? Are we going to do all specialty ingredients, things like that, that might be an expenditure that maybe not everybody would be on the same page with? I've never seen it to that detail. Um uh, every once in a while, I'll see a departure agreement, but most times you don't even see that. It's like a, like a prenup for owners. That 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 would probably cause the the least amount of drama in regards to breaking up if you ever need to break up. Um, no, it's not common to go down to that level. I've, I that I've never seen. Gotcha. Have you seen those cause a lot of problems in terms of so and so doesn't know that so and so is doing all those things? Only if it becomes it, where, where it starts to completely change the dynamic of the company. And usually these comps aren't that big of a deal. It's, it's interesting, you know, when, when Craft Brewery was making all the money it ever wanted to make, you could do as many comps and as many beers as you want. And as it got harder and harder, there's less and less is for free. So I, I think everything's kind of tightened up and it's changed the nature of the industry. And I've seen a lot of really good people leave the industry from before the pandemic and into the pandemic because it's not necessarily the uh, panacea that it was before the pandemic. Mindy, did you want to add something? Nope. <laughs> Thank you, though. Ooh, you threw me I there. You just had a knowing smile. <laughs> deep, 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 deep. What's that? That was a deep fake. <laughs> well, just for that, I'm going to turn to you. <laughs> 
So have you seen a different attitude among owners when there's a board of directors involved in an advisory capacity? Well, uh, you know, I think I think there uh, there could certainly be uh, adversarial moments in the uh, owner CEO slash uh, board relationship. Um, I think it's important to note that you know if you're a sole proprietor, uh, you don't need a board. You don't have to have a board of directors. Um, you can't create a board of advisors, right? And they have zero fiduciary responsibility. And that's a totally different environment. Um, but uh, I think if you put the right group together on uh, uh, management and, and board slash ownership can work really well together. Um, it's important that you staff the board with uh, expertise that you may not have in the management uh, office. Um, and that's a real good way to create good working relationships between the board and the management ownership. Uh, it, it is for the board to have be able to pick up slack on, on key, uh, uh, key skill sets such as financial planning. That's probably the biggest one in my book from the board perspective, how valuable finance experience can be. A lot of us people starting breweries, that's not our, that's not our bailiwick. You know, we're, we're more about making beer and selling beer. We're either brewers or in my case, schmoozer and boozer. And neither of those functions have finance as a specialty. So it's really great to have financial expertise on the board that can really uh, help create um, small but significant uh, competitive advantages in, in the area of finance. Mary, did you wanna add something? Yeah, uh, typically I see board of directors come um, because somebody's looking for board of directors. So if you just have like two people that wanna start a brewery, they're not gonna to know to have a board of directors. If they come out of the corporate world, they're gonna be looking for a board of directors. So some of this is, is um, like business savvy. And if you're looking for those board of directors, I think you get a better product because you have more minds that can help you design, design and run the brewery. Um, I think overall it's a good idea, but you have to almost be ready for it and want to do it. I've never seen it where board directors are like forced on an owner. So I think it's it's either something you're looking for or something you don't want. Gotcha. Well, and and, and I believe certain ownership structures required, right? If you have, if you have if you have a certain number of investors, or if you're a uh, a certain type of uh, uh, corporation, S Corp, uh, LLC. I'm not sure specifically which uh, you're required to have a, a, a board, I believe. Yes. I mean, I for sure in California, I assume that's a, a national thing. Jeff? O'Brien, yeah, did you? Wanna... For, yeah, for, for corporations, I don't think, I think, you know, nationwide, no matter what the state, I think there's a, there's probably a requirement of some minimum number of of members of the board of directors, the the LLC not so much. It's, it's the man. It's usually seen manager managed or member managed. Um, doesn't mean you can't have it. 
um, here in Minnesota, you know, we I think we have a similar LLC Act to you in California, Candace, the their the Revised Uniform Act, but they 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 shoehorned in this unique board managed structure as a holdover from our previous LLC law. But most of the time, it's for certainly for corporations, it's required. Yeah, one thing I will mention, just for those of you listening, um, everyone on a every director of a of a company of a corporation, I guess technically, um, does uh, have to report information to the uh, federal alcohol agency, uh, TTB, and definitely in California, again, you, you'll be one of those people getting fingerprinted and providing all your personal financial information. Uh, Mary? Yeah, I, I think what I was trying to say is that there, there's always a board of directors in the structure of the co corporation, but do they actively meet? Do they act, actively advise? And that's, that's what I'm talking about, an active board versus the boards in the, in the documents. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that was such a kind of a cool discussion. I kind of got lost in my questions. Let's see. Well, actually, let's stick with Mary. Um, how can owners and investors be in sync with regard to projected growth and expansion over time? One of the ways that I like to do it is to, to build some financial um, structure, making sure that you see the that the financials are formally closed that you see reports on a regular basis and you meet and talk about it. Um, that way everybody sort of understands not only how much quote unquote money we're gonna make or in, uh, in income statement discussion or versus how much cash do we have and what can we do a balance sheet conversation. So what I try to do is bring everybody together and start the baseline understanding of how they're doing. Um, and then they know where they are and then you start in the budget process every year saying, this is what we want to do. And then you track what you think you're going to do based uh, what you're doing versus what you think you're going to do. So I think if you bring that together and you bring people together to talk about it, I find that that works much better than just the magical thinking and not closing the books and only doing it and only sending your books to the tax person without actually looking at them. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I actually, one of my, I, I basically tell my clients, again, I, I deal with a lot of small startups, um, that ideally your investors are not investing in you to make a profit. They're investing in you because they believe in your product. They believe in you as people. Obviously, they don't want to lose their money, but uh, you, you got to have a special plan if you're if your investors are expecting to make money, especially in the first few years. In, in my 10 years of, of in working in this industry, I've only seen one brewery pay dividends to its investors. Wow. I mean, I'm not surprised. I just like to actually hear that like spoken, like is uh, is interesting. Yep. So. And, and most of the balance sheets I see have close to a negative retained earnings. So you, you do it for the social aspect, not necessarily for the financial aspect of investing. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Jeff, I'm going to pop back to you because I am very interested to hear your thoughts. I, I have some strong thoughts, but what are your thoughts about equity crowdsourcing? So for listener, A, if you can define that for people listening and then uh, your experience, thoughts, etc. Sure. So equity crowdsourcing, equity crowdfunding refers to the, you know, mass basically mass marketing 
of 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 an interest in the business, whether it be as you know, uh, uh, direct equity or a note or uh, you know a, a simple agreement for future equity is safe. Um, done through particularly it's federal regulation CF. This was one about 11 years ago with the Jobs Act of 2012. There was that recognition that it was getting hard for small businesses to raise capital. So there was an attempt at the federal level to loosen restrictions that had been around for 80 years. And one and the the hard thing that that particularly for a a, a brewery prior to that act and prior to crowdfunding was that the, the 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 available exemptions didn't allow any sort of advertising like you alluded to earlier candidates you couldn't go on social media you couldn't send emails out you couldn't do you know have you know stories in newspapers about it um it was very hard to raise money and this a brewery is in in some ways is a type of business that you're not a startup brewery is not going to necessarily attract the interest of venture capitalists and other professional investors so it was extremely difficult in in, in some ways unless you had friends and family to tap to 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 raise funds beyond you know bank loans and, and your own personal funds so along comes equity crowdfunding which took a few years you know after they when when uh, when it was signed into law in 2012, it took about three years, I believe, to actually get the SEC to release, you know, to actually publish a set of of rules that everybody could live with. The first the first round was like 500 pages, and the securities bar screamed bloody murder about it. And so you have states that that also passed their own equity crowdfunding laws while they were waiting for the for the SEC. So I do a lot of this for a lot of different businesses. I've been doing it for a couple of years, and so I'll, I'll I'll give you my opinion based on having done this uh, for a couple of years now. It's not a panacea. Um, it's 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 not uh, going to solve. It, it's not going to be the key for every brewery to get um, to get funded. It works for some types of businesses. It does work for um, breweries in part because I believe it works best for businesses that are public facing and it you know if, if you're trying to reach you know there's there's a they call them the non-accredited investors an accredited investor long story short million dollars net worth not including your primary residence or you have two hundred thousand dollar gross income as an individual or three hundred thousand dollars as a couple that's kind of and there's other there's other that parts the other other ways of meeting that definition but but in securities law it's it's a heck of a lot easier to raise money through accredited investors than non-accredited because the law deems them to be sophisticated enough they probably have their lawyer their financial advisor their accountant involved with making investment decisions and so they're deemed to be able to fend for themselves legally speaking what what is what a lot of what securities laws do and there are a lot of its consumer protection laws focusing on protecting smaller investors because remember securities laws came about in wake of the great depression and the stock market crash of 1929 the idea behind them is to keep that from happening again and to keep you know keep smaller investors from losing everything and so there's there's restrictions as to how much a non-accredited investor can invest into uh, a regulation cf offering you have to file is a massive disclosure document with the SEC online. It's a public document before you can 
before you can go out and raise funds. You have to, you know, work through an approved portal site in order to be able to do this. And there's compliance, there's, there's reporting requirements ongoing. So it's not a perfect solution. There's never a perfect solution. I mean, the one perfect solution is have a lot of money to start your brewery. I and mean, that's, that's it. I mean, there, there, there is no easy way to raise money from other people. Um, and so I, what I'm, I think it's, it's, it's an, it's an, it's a tool out there. It's an arrow in the quiver, but it's not necessarily the be all end all. We'll see, no, I'm working with some crowdfunding uh, portals that are now also uh, starting their own uh, secondary trading system. So the idea being that you can, you know, being able to trade some of these equity interests on a secondary market out, you know, outside of the, the regular exchanges. Uh, some people believe that that's the key to making crowdfunding work is to be able to have this uh, this alt alternative exchange. But we'll see. Um, but it's it's something to consider. It's actually, believe it or not, I think it's easier to use a crowdfunding offering for an already existing brewery that may be looking to maybe expand its tap room or you know purchase some additional equipment, not wanting to go out and borrow more money, because you have a customer base you can already tap. Right. You, there's your non-accredited investors. There's your, you know, you've got, you've got the, the patrons of the brewery, the people that like your beer. You can go to them with, with an offering. Maybe you want to retire some debt or something like that. You can, you can use a crowdfunding offering to do something like that. It's still a little bit, it's still difficult, uh, you know, as a, as a startup to come in and, 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 and raise that money because you don't have that loyal fan base. Maybe you, maybe that if you were a home brewer and people like your, you have a, a lot of friends and folks that, that might uh, know of you that you might uh, that, that might might do it too, but it's not the easiest thing to do. But you know, it's, again, it's it's one more thing out there that we didn't have a decade ago to try to raise money. So uh, one quick question that I have because I haven't run into this yet, but I'm just waiting is so how do you report those investors to alcohol agencies? Like assuming you get a you know, ridiculous number of investors. Mm -hmm. How do you track all those people and get their personal it, and financial it, information if you need it? It it depends upon the the state. You know, the TTB is obviously looking at you know the the principles, so they they aren't as concerned um, at the at the federal level. Where it comes up more is at the state level, and it's more of the three the three tier question. If you have somebody that's you know, you know, owns a bar or, you know, or in some other, you know, has some other or a whole, you know, a wholesale license or has some other interest in another tier. And they're looking for that. Now, I can tell you what Minnesota has done is if if you're below a 5% interest, they aren't running background checks and they aren't doing they aren't doing all the, the you know, the, the vetting of those investors. And it's funny, I was kind of involved in, in, in inadvertently with, with them changing their policy on this. I have one of my breweries is formed as a cooperative so that we have like a thousand owners. And we were the second cooperative in brewing co-op in Minnesota to form. And so my client was getting some pushback. Our, our, our alcohol and gambling enforcement division initially was going to do background checks on everybody. And they called me in a panic saying, uh, we're not going to get any, anybody to, to sign up. They're going to run background checks. And this is going to take forever. So I called up another attorney friend in town who had done the first co-op. And I said, what did they do with you? And he said, well, they only did the board members and more than like 10% or something. 
So I, I, I call back our person and they said, oh, we, we realized we changed our policy. We realized that it was we, we believe that it was incorrect. And now we're doing it correctly. So, OK, so we're back to this again. Well, they in long story short, they find out that co-op number one now had like 2000 members and the alcohol and gambling enforcement officials calculated out how much time it was going to take to run background checks on 2000 individuals when the renewal came up for this license and said, we're reverting to our prior policy. So Minnesota's one, they do less than, if you have a less than 5% ownership stake, they aren't running background checks or doing anything like that. Um, occasionally, you know, you'll, you'll, they'll, they'll snare the owner that has an interest in another tier. And so we're doing assignments of the interest to their spouse because we haven't, there's a besides you know we have the three tier issue, but they also have a policy that if the spouse is using independent funds, they can they can own an interest in a uh, a separate tier. So let's just say there's a lot of spouses in Minnesota that have been one has an interest in a bar and one has an interest in a brewery or a distillery. I'm like that's okay. That's a nice loophole. So gotcha. So I'm gonna guess that well, and so this might be what happens in California that as as the agencies start to see some of these come through, they may change some of their policies. That like I said, that that's what I was wondering. So good to know. Yeah. yeah. So I think we actually need to start wrapping up. This is I knew we had a lot to cover and a little bit of time. So um I wanna get everybody's best piece of advice you can offer a startup. Uh around this area of ownership, organizational structure, et cetera. So let's start with Mendy. Well, I think uh, first, uh, limited number of active founders would be my first piece of advice. I think two is probably the ideal number of active owner, founder owners. Um, you know, uh, I like the idea of, friends and family and outside. I like the idea of a board of directors. I think it's a, it's, it's a good support mechanism to have. Uh, again, if you're going to have a board, uh, you know, I, you're going to have some of your board members are going to be investors who are, who are representing other investors, but you want to make sure that you have a varied and very useful skills, set of skills, set of expertise on your board to fill in the gaps that the management team does not have. Great, thank you. Uh, Jeff O'Brien. I would say, and this is selfish, I think having, making sure that you have a good team of advisors in these initial stages, not only tax advisor, uh, not only an operations consultant, if you don't have somebody on the team, and of course, the legal advisor. There are a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of ways to go sideways if it's done the wrong way. And as I always say to my clients, you know, you guys are doing this one time. We do this many times regularly. So you can benefit from our experience and watching clients that maybe do the right thing and some that do the wrong thing. And we can help guide you through that process to try to make you make the right decisions. Great. I agree, obviously. Uh, and Mary. Make sure that whoever you go into business with, you're on the same page, both um, in terms of values and in terms of what you want to get out of the brewery. 
you will spend more time and more energy with your business partners than you will with your personal partner. It is literally a marriage. And so make sure that you can go through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows with those people. And you both want the, and everybody wants the same thing. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, having seen quite a few business divorces, as I'm sure Jeff also probably has, and it's definitely not pretty. Um, aside from the expense and just the in the general um, difficulty, it's very emotionally uh, difficult. So, yeah, the business prenup, that's a, a good thing to think about. Well, I want to thank you guys. I'm going to throw it back to Laura. Yeah, thank you all. I think that, you know, I learned things from every single one of these podcasts, but I think this is one that I, I had the least amount of experience in, and I have about a billion questions for Jeff O'Brien about investors, but we'll get, we'll get to all of them, I'm sure, since I get to hang out with you in Pittsburgh. Um, so a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 008, Ownership and Organizational Structure of the Started Brewery Podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 009, continuing forward with building your business plan, this time delving into the questions around having a kitchen or not, and evaluating the prospect of creating a tap room, a brew pub, or a packaging brewery. This will be released within the very first minute of the day on Tuesday, April 25th. We now have a final wrap-up word from our sponsor. Craft Beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrive's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Started Brewery website at startedbrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Please uh, be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update, with new Started Brewery contributors, content, events, and more great information on the contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com and perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candice Moon wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery.